0: How many of you, and you can raise your hand and not be embarrassed, how many of you went out shopping late Thursday night? Anybody go shopping? We have a few. Raise your hand. I huh? you can see it. Okay. How about the early Friday morning? Anybody get up in the early Friday morning? How about Friday at all? Did anybody shop Friday, Saturday? Amen. Amen. I know for some of you, it's a family tradition. It's gotten to be a family tradition for a lot of my family to get up and, and uh, go early and stay all day and shop, and, and they just love doing that. As for me, uh, no judgment, but uh, you couldn't pry me to go any of those places. If they were giving stuff away free, I could, wouldn't get up early to be able to go and see some of those places. But I, it's amazing to me that the irony that's right in front of our face that we don't see um, that takes place this past weekend. I mean, we we move to the day after a national holiday where we celebrate all that we've been given to a holiday we've created built around getting more stuff. I mean, now think about the irony of that. We have a holiday created so that we could go out and fight somebody so we could save $4 on yoga pants or save, you know, whatever on a cheap TV if you're in Gastonia at Walmart and end up fighting over it and causing a huge crowd. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing to me, if you think about it, that we spend all day Thursday focusing on gratitude and thanks, and then we turn around and wait for hours and screaming and elbow to elbow and yelling just so we can get more stuff. I think that's a first world problem. It's a kind of an American problem. Now, as I said, if you went and you did that, I'm not trying to to condemn you, or I'm not judging you, more power to you guys that can get up and do that. But I, I just think the dichotomy of how those things changed and have changed is interesting. Because if you think about it, the reason, if I'd have asked five years ago how many of you got up early Friday morning, most hands, I remember I did five or six years ago, most hands went up. Because there's a shift, and it's continually shifting. Forty years ago, when the whole thing started about getting up and spending the night, it all started with Cabbage Patch dolls. You remember that? Cabbage Patch dolls were rare, uh, ugly little dolls that every girl had to have. And so, but they didn't make enough. And so people went on the day after Thanksgiving when they were getting shipments and they got there in the middle of the night or late at night and they camped out and put out tents and waited so they could be the first ones to get it. And back then, you looked at those people and you thought, they're crazy, didn't you? I mean, it's just, who in the world would get up and spend all night just to get a a doll? But then as time transitioned and stores began to open differently, it became a norm. People began to just say, that's just what we do. We get up early on Friday and we go shop and we, we go spend all day shopping after Thanksgiving with family and friends. And now... Because of Cyber Monday, which some of you will stay up late tonight at 12.01 to be able to get the great deals online. Since more people buy Christmas gifts now online than they do actually in stores, it's kind of shifted away. People aren't getting up early and going Friday or Saturday anymore. They're waiting and shopping on Monday. And so it continually is changing. But my worry in all of this is what does that say about the hold that those things that we are trying to acquire has on us? What does it say about us when we are honest with ourselves as Christ followers about how that affects our sense of priority, how that affects and and lines up with what really is important to us? Let me put it another way. I wonder how many of us would get up in the middle of the night to go serve food at a homeless shelter on Thanksgiving? What if you had to wait three hours to be able for your turn to serve? What if you had to stand in line for three hours before you even got to stand there and serve food? I wonder how many of us would be excited or willing to do that. Now understand I'm not judging. What I'm trying to say is we need to examine all of us, our priorities, because It's funny that the same people that'll go out and and elbow to elbow and they'll they'll park at the farthest place in the mall and and hike in to get to a store as early as they can will come to church on Sunday and complain because they couldn't find a parking place close enough to church. I have actually had people tell me, we drove in the summer, we came to visit your church and we couldn't find a parking place after 15 minutes, so we just left. Or they'll come in and there'll be church be too crowded and they say, I can't find a seat. I, this is not going to stay. Those same people that elbow to elbow, they're not going to be denied, are going to get up there on Friday and Saturday. We'll say, Well, I'm, I don't have the energy. I'm too tired to be able to get up and go to church on Sunday. Now, like I said, I'm not judging. It just makes you say, Hmm. Makes you think. I had the privilege in the late 90s for serving. And in six years at First Baptist Church at College Station, Texas and College Station is a true college town. It's the the home of Texas A&M. And, um, you know, when you think of a college town, that is College Station, Texas. It is all engrossed in the Texas A&M culture. Everyone, you've got a town of 35,000 and a school in the town that has 60,000 students. And so everything in the town revolves around the school. Uh, they're either alumni or students or or people that work for things that support the school. And, and Saturdays, you go to Texas a football games. That was just what you did. And just to let you know, I'm, I'm kind of a little tired because if you didn't watch last night, Texas a and won in their seventh overtime against LSU. It ended about 1 o'clock, the longest game in FBS history, five-hour game, uh, highest scoring game. So uh, back and forth, I, I was a little emotional and didn't know if I'd be able to get up. I thought about calling Blake saying, listen, I can't, I can't make it in the morning. But Texas AM is like that. And on Sunday, one of the traditions at Texas a I've told you, is they're called the home of the 12th man. And that's because... In the early 20th century, uh, the football team, because they required military service, they um, at times were were low because guys would have to go do their National Guard service, even guys on the football team. And in one of the games that they were playing, they, several guys got hurt, and it looked like they only were going to have 11 guys to be able to play. And so the coach turned around and looked at one of the guys in the stands and said, At halftime, I need you to be ready to go in in case somebody gets hurt. And so the whole second half of the game, that guy stood over where the coach could see him, stood up the whole time so that the coach could call him out of the stands to come play if they needed him. And so that started the tradition of 12th man, that all the students at Texas A&M stand for all four quarters of the game. And if you're an alumni, you stand for all four quarters of the game. So for four hours, people come, A 100,000 people will come and stand for four hours. Well, the late 90s was when worship was beginning to change and, and we were beginning to do choruses and our worship leader at First Baptist Church was beginning to have people say, listen, we're going to stand while we sing because it is just a way to be able to honor God with our voices and it's just a, a, a ounce of respect. Now, God's not interested, I've told you, in the posture as much as He is the condition of your heart, but by standing, He was trying to get them to be able to sing and get engaged more. Well, we had so many people complaining, complaining, listen, I can't, we're, he's making a stand and we probably did 12 minutes of music. We had to stand for all 14 minutes of music. And these were the same people who on Saturday stood for four and a half hours for a football game. So being the way that I am, I decided to bring it up at a sermon I preached. I preached. And there was outcry. I said, Pastor, it's not the same. I said, no, it's not. I said, one is worship, and you're taking your worship here when it should be here. We lose sight of what's really important. Now, I know you, some of you are saying, oh, Pastor, this is just none of your business. Why are you worried about what I do on, on Black Friday? Well, I don't. I don't care what you do. But I care about you. And part of my calling as the pastor of this church is to encourage and lead and challenge you and remind you and to make you think about where in your life the priority of God's kingdom falls. To make you wrestle with the idea of how we struggle against the things of this world, against the things of God. And so as I prayed about this morning, I thought as we move from Thanksgiving to Christmas, I wanted us just to ask ourselves, do we have the proper foundation? Do we have the right priorities to be able to move into the Christmas season and really get the most out of it? And so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to take the verse I read earlier, which is probably one of the most well-known verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And hopefully it can give us some clarity. And then I'm going to look at an Old Testament verse real quickly that I think may add some wisdom. So I want to go back and reread what I read earlier from Matthew chapter 6. And I'm just going to start down in verse 24. Just one verse. For no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. For you cannot serve both God and money. Now I've shared with you before that Paul and even Jesus in their teaching try to encourage Christians that the key to living the Christian life to to the fullest is to be able to find balance. The problem for many Christians in many churches is we're just not balanced. Spirit and truth... There are a lot of churches that will focus more on truth than spirit. And so it it becomes more like a seminar, more like a professor time. And then there's other churches that will go more on spirit. And those churches are more emotionally involved. And, And what happens is when you move outside of that balance, one part misses it. We move between faith and action, faith and works, Right. You've got to find a balance. It's not all about works. It's not all about faith. Between grace and the law, we have, we have to find balance. Some people, they go so far in the extreme of grace that they don't even consider holiness and righteousness. And some people, they get so wrapped up in the law and legalism that they're just pouring guilt on their people. And so there's always this tension of balance for the Christian. But this is not one of those times. This is clearly one of those times where Jesus says it's an either-or proposition. And there is no middle ground. There is no, I'm not going to make that choice or I'm not going to decide. Because by not deciding, you're deciding. He says when you, and he's writing to Christians in the Sermon on the Mount, he says you have to ask yourself, who is master of your heart? Who is in charge of your life? Who is in charge of the decisions that you make? Who is the top priority of your life? Because Jesus knows that there is always going to be a tension in the Christian's life between his flesh and his spirit. When we become a Christian, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and he takes control of every area of our life. But unfortunately, he comes to live inside a sinful fleshly body. And there are still desires and wants and things from our past that appeal to this fleshly body. And so there is always a tension until one day when we are all raptured or we all go to stand before the face of Jesus Christ and He gives us a new heavenly body, there will no longer be a tension there. But until that time, while we dwell on this earth, there is a struggle. Paul talked about the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. They're battling each other over who is in charge Who is in control of our bodies? And what he's saying here is he's saying it's only going to be one of two masters because God knows one of his greatest challenges is the area of stuff, the area of money. One of the greatest tensions is going to be that pursuit of things because God knows once we begin to challenge ourselves to make those things a priority, that becomes the master of our heart. And even if, as a Christian, if we want to say God's first, our actions show something differently. And so Jesus is trying to warn us here that you need to ask yourself, who's most important in your life? Things, stuff, money, or God? Because it can't be both. Because they cannot exist on the same plane. There's not enough room on the throne of your heart for both of those things. It's why the Bible talks so much about money. Do you realize that Jesus in the four Gospels talks about money more than He does prayer? Now when pastors bring up money in church, it gets real quiet. Let me just share with you this to give you some relief. God doesn't want or need your money. He doesn't want or need your money. He wants your heart. But he knows that he won't have your heart until you let go of everything else. And he knows that the hardest thing for man to let go of is stuff. And it's the hold that those things have on our lives, the control that they place on our lives that keeps us from being who God calls us to be. It keeps us from living the way God calls us to. And I told you, we don't talk about money in the church. Because it makes people uncomfortable. People don't want to talk about it. But, but that's a problem. I believe we probably need to talk about it more and about its dangers. Because as we move as a culture and we begin to shift, we are seeing a more consumer-driven culture than any time in our history. Do you know what was the fastest-growing business in the United States of America in the last 20 years was? Fastest-growing business is a tech industry, medical industry, storage industry. The fastest-growing business is the storage industry. Because as we get more and more stuff, we've got to have a place to put it. And it doesn't fit in our homes, so we buy storage and storage, and we put it and lock it away. and we, Most of us don't ever look at it again until something happens. And we've got to go, well, it's our stuff. We don't like to talk about money. Now listen, I I understand and I recognize that there are shady panhandlers who are wolves in sheep clothing who pimp the gospel to foster their own pockets. There are people out there that abuse the gospel and have bad theology and bad hermeneutics that focus on money for the wrong reasons and the wrong focus for their own benefits. But we can't let... Those things hinder us from studying the truth because it's that important. Let me just tell you one of the things I've learned in doing this for 30 years and counseling people for 30 years. You can ask people that counsel people for a living or people that have done this kind of thing. The greatest majority of people that have struggles or needs or problems are based on two things, sex and money. Just telling you. One of the greatest struggles in marriage, if a couple calls me and says, Pastor, we need to come in for some marriage counseling, my mind automatically will go to two things, sex and money, because that's the greatest disruptor in marriages today. Arguments and fights over money and arguments and fights over sex. And what's the two things that we shy away from talking about in the church? Sex and money. We don't talk about it enough. We shy away. We act like, well, we can't talk about it. Because any time that we talk about sex and money, we already have preconditioned ideas. Pastors start saying something about money. You say, oh, he just wants my money. Start talking about saying, well, God just doesn't want us to have any fun. We, we just, bam, bam, that's where it is. But see, part of the problem in, in the why I'm bringing it up, and, and let's just be honest. I don't want you to raise your hand. But if I had to ask you what one of your greatest regrets, one of your greatest struggles in your own life is, I guarantee you 80% of us, including myself, would say it revolved around sex or money. And the problem is, is our culture moves further away from even talking about it, and our churches are scared to talk about it. All of the solutions to money and sex issues are found in this book. It can tell you how to have the best marriage. It can tell you how God created sex and He created it to be incredible and fun and how you can experience that. He talks about how we can manage our money to be able to find a blessing in our money. But we're so scared to talk about it because people might get mad or people might get offended that we just skip over it and we have a whole generation that's walking away. That's why Jesus brings it up in this teaching because He thinks it's important. Because to be honest with you, the key competition for control of your heart, devotion, your fellowship, your service, is not the devil. It's your own sinful nature. It's ourselves. It's an internal struggle. And the question is not, is money most important or things most important? The question is, do I surrender myself and place my total dependence on God or do I continue to place my hope in things? My hold devotion to things that's what jesus was saying in verse 24 you can't serve both they're not compatible and i discovered when you start talking about things usually there are two extremes when we start talking about stuff money and things of money there are two extremes you have two groups of people. You have the consumers, and you have the hoarders. Now I know we don't like to talk, say hoarding anymore because of the TV show it makes us all feel kind of icky or weird. Uh, but you, you, instead of what we used to call them when I was little, or my parents to call you tight, okay, real stingy with their money. You have the consumers and you have the hoarders, the the tight people. And the consumers are the ones who their idea is is that anytime I get stuff or I get money or I get I'm gonna automatically go and buy the things that I want. That's my first impression. I get money, I hundred dollars is coming in. I know before the hundred dollars comes in where I'm gonna spend it because I've been waiting to buy this thing for my house or this car or or this decoration or this vacation or whatever it is, those are consumers. They don't even let the money come in before it's already flowing out. And that's on one extreme. On the other extreme, you have the, the tight people, the hoarders. They don't ever let go of it. It comes in and, and it stays in. They're the ones that, you know, you're sitting at a restaurant and you see them trying to figure out how little they can give of a tip and still walk away with it. Because it, it doesn't go out of their hands. Now the problem, is, and the funny thing is, just think about it, what I found is most of the time in marriages, a hoarder will marry a consumer. We like to call them savers and spenders, right? That sounds a little better. I'm a saver, I'm a spender. And it, can you imagine what a marriage is like if they're both savers or they're both spenders? And so, usually it's, and so there's a tension already in that marriage. Over what? Money. Stuff. But the problem is both of those cases, both of those extremes are wrong and sinful. Because you see what happens is as you get moved to those areas, you become the center of your life and what you want becomes the focus instead of what God wants. Because it all becomes about your stuff. If it's a, it's a consumer, it's about the things that you buy. If it's a hoarder, it's about how much you've saved. And you see, when that's your focus, did you see who gets left out? God. If all you're ever doing is getting it and spending it and getting it and it, where does God come into that equation? If all you're ever doing is sitting on it and hoarding it, then where is God in that equation? Serving God and ministering through God. And what happens with those two extremes is those people begin to worship those things and that means of being able to extend. Their finances. And it all revolves around that nasty word we talked about a couple of weeks ago, greed. Chuck Swindoll, the pastor, defines greed as the assumption that it's all for my consumption. That's a great definition. Because you need to understand, you can be poor and be greedy. You can be rich and you can be greedy. It's that idea that it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. The problem is when we have those focuses, God has no place in our heart. We can say God's the most important thing in my life. We can say God's in charge of everything. But in reality, you've moved him to the back. And all God becomes then is plan B for when everything falls apart, right? We don't worry about God as long as we're storing it up until it disappears. We don't worry about God as long as it's coming and going until it stops coming. Then we say, God, what am I supposed to do? God said, why are you coming to me now? Why didn't you come to me before? Why are you coming to me now to try to bail you out? To try to help you in this situation? Because you see, if God would have been the one who was on the throne all along, you'd have never gotten into those situations. Because you'd have never allowed your worship to lose focus of God and begin to go to those two areas. You know, breaking the power of greed can be tough. Jesus says it's hard. It's not not a one-time decision. It's not a prayer. It's not something you can walk out of here and say, okay, I'm going to break the curse of greed over my life or speak it to somebody. It has to be practiced and lived and walked out. It has to be something that we put into our life every day and make it a part of my life. You need to understand, God knows that if He can have your checkbook... And if he can have your money and he can have your stuff, he can have your heart. Let me show you something real quickly from the passages listed in your order. And I want you to stay with me. This is from Numbers chapter 11. And a friend of mine showed me this this summer. I'd never seen it because let's just be honest. When you're reading through the Bible and you get to the book of Numbers, you're about to pass out. Okay, you, you, I know if you read through the Bible in a year, you get, go into it, Genesis, you know, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're, you're just wore out by the time you come to Numbers and Deuteronomy. You're just, it, it, it paces on you. And so most of us just kind of breeze through it. And I had never seen this before until he mentioned it because we were talking about consumerism. And and what's happening in Numbers chapter 11 is the children of God have been delivered from Egypt. Moses has saved them out of bondage, saved them out of slavery. They are moving to the promised land. He's already killed Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. And they are moving towards the promised land. And as they move, God is providing manna from heaven. He's providing everything that they need. But there is a group of people that feel like that's not enough, God's not doing enough. It's a group of people that start thinking, you know, sure we were slaves, sure we were being put to death, sure we had no rights, but at least we had a warm bed back in Egypt. At least we had a, you know, we got a a nice meal back in Egypt. It says in verse 1, chapter 11, they started complaining. They started fussing and God heard. And the Bible says that once God heard and was aroused, a fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed those on the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed for the Lord for the fire to die down. So the place where that happened is called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, I, I don't know if it was fire from heaven or if they got sick, but we do know they died. And they died because of their personal choices. They died because of the decisions that they made. What I found interesting when my friend presented to me is that word tabera, if you go look it up in the Hebrew language, it is the two Hebrew words, Kibroth Hatai. Tibroth Hatai, and that directly translates the graves of craving. The graves of craving see, what it translated to mean is that these people who said God is not enough were put in a grave that was known as the graves of craving. They they had decided that what God was providing wasn't what they wanted. And they began to crave something different. And it's those cravings that led them to a desolate place to never experience the promised land. Now, understand hunger is different from craving. They weren't hungry. God was providing it for them. They were craving something that they used to have, craving something that used to be a part of them. Craving is defined as a strong warning of what promises pleasure or enjoyment. Even though their craving would take them back to slavery and bondage and death, all they could see was the pleasure that it involved. They didn't see the the consequences. And what God spoke to me from this passage, and you can go read Moses, the rest of chapter 11. He explains what was going on and their complaints and their, what was happening. But what got to me is that that's exactly what's happening in America. This idea of craving. So many Christians are set free. They're given their freedom. They're moved out of bondage. But yet they still begin to crave the things that they used to do and the things that they used to have. Craving is the opposite of being content. It's this idea because what happens is craving always emphasizes the pleasure and never the pain. And what happens as Christians is it's a pathway to greed because all of a sudden we start craving all of those things that used to be in control of our heart and shouldn't be any longer. And it's those cravings that will always lead you to a place of a graveyard of craving, to a place of death. A place away from God. Because, see, craving will always corrupt your memory of the past. It will always blind you. to you know, They couldn't see the slavery. They didn't think about the pain. They didn't think about the suffering. They didn't think about the difficulties. All they could think about was, hey, we've been eating this manna from heaven for a month. I wish I had a steak. Man, we got steaks in, in Egypt. I want to go back to that. And that may not be your craving, but a lot of times for Christians, it's a craving for material things. It's a craving for a position. It's a craving for a relationship. When you knew in that moment that was the worst thing for you. But you forget about all that, don't you? Hear people talk about the good old days. I used to laugh because my grandparents, they'd talk about how hard life was. They, were, they both grew up on farms in East Texas. We had to get up with the chickens, we, no car, had one pair of pants, got all day in the fields picking cotton and planting, picking beans and stripping beans. And, you know, we didn't have anything to our name and it was so hard and so rough. But man, that was the good old days. That's not the good old days. And we do the same thing. That's what craving will do to you. It's kind of like living in all of your Facebook posts without the rest of life being a reality. Because all you see on Facebook is the best of everything, right? You know, people post, on, they only post the good stuff. I've seen a lot of your Thanksgiving pictures. It's your family, you're smiling, you're around the great table, and you know, and you, God's blessed us, we get to spend Thanksgiving with our family, right? But you didn't post the picture of Uncle Joe who went and sat in the car for eight hours because he had a fight with somebody else in the room. You didn't post mom crying over in the corner because something didn't turn out, though. You know, you go, hey, let's get a picture of mom crying. Thanksgiving, 2018. If all you saw was people's Facebook posts, you would think everybody we know lives idyllic lives, right? Because we only post the best, the good. And that's what craving does to you. Craving promises the best and the good. And so we all focus on that. and We don't think about the difficulty. I remember a time in my life when God had saved me and I was moving away from a lot of the things that were destroying my life. I was set free, out of bondage. And I was trying, but I had friends and people around me that were influencing me. Don't you remember? You can handle it. It's not that bad. It, don't you remember the good times we had? And, and I was getting drawn back in. This was when my mom was was invalid in our home. And so people would come to the house and they'd bring... Um, meals and come and watch her and, and, and I was getting drawn and starting to move off of that path and I remember this little lady she was bringing food to my mom and and I, she read into me she read my mail better than anybody else could and she was bringing this meal and she walked by me and she kind of glanced up at me and she quoted Proverbs twenty six eleven, which is not the best proverb that you want spoken over you Proverbs twenty six eleven says as a dog returns to its vomit so a fool to his folly that's what she said to me. Sweet little old lady walking out the door. <laughs> As the dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to his father. You know what she was saying? She was saying those cravings may sound good, but they lead to destruction. And you just keep going back and going back and going back. You see, the soil that greed grows in is created from cravings those unnatural desires to have and to be and to do what God has already set you free from. So some of this morning, you have embraced putting God first. And you felt that freedom. There was a time in your life where, where things didn't control you. You controlled them and, and you were living and experiencing God's blessings and God's freedom because you'd been set free and you put him in charge of everything and he was making decisions for you. But some craving in your life edged him out and put whatever it is, relationships, stuff, money, job, promotion, whatever it is that those cravings promised you, put him back on the throne. I'm telling you this morning that that path will always lead to a grave of craving to bear a destruction. So how do you break it? Let me end. It's easy. How do you break it? What does Jesus say? He, he begins to talk about how worry is a part of not having God on your throne. And then he says down in verse 33, the, the promise of how we can break it. And it's very simple. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. Seek first. Seek first God. Put God first in your life, your first priority. Seek His kingdom, what He wants in your life. Before you make any decision, ask, God, what do you want from me? Seek His righteousness. You know what His righteousness is? It's taking this book and applying it. When you learn something, you say, I'm going to apply it. And what does He say happens when you do that? All these things will be given unto you. What are these things? It's all of those things that you used to put in control of your heart. But now they're prioritized. See, money's not bad in and of itself. It's what we do with money. Stuff is not bad in and of itself. It's what we do with it. It's where it falls in our priority list. But what Jesus says is, if you'll put me first, if you'll seek me, if you'll apply this word, then I'll add all of those other things that you used to think were important. I'll take care of you. But now, instead of them controlling you from the top down, you control them through Jesus Christ. What a promise. See, we've got it backwards and we're about to head into the season that is all about cravings and greed and desire and want and more. And if we have it backwards, if we don't have the right priority, if God is not on our throne, then we're going to miss what the season is all about. You can come next week and sing Christmas carols and you can be here Christmas Eve and do communion and feel all warm and fuzzy about Christmas. But you're going to walk away missing the miracle that brings life change. Let me end with giving you something practical. I like to always say, here's how you can practice this. Because that's, put God first. that, That sounds so out there. Charles Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, and John Wesley, his brother, they taught a principle in the Methodist church, and it's still taught today, three steps. Gain all you can, give all you can, and save all you can. But I like when Andy Stanley, who's the pastor of North Point Church, he changed it around a little, and it's one of their foundation points for putting Christ first in your life. And it's real simple. Give, save, live. What they practice, what they encourage people to do is the first that you get, whatever it is, you give. You give out of it. You give from it. Now, in Baptist churches that teach tithing, they say, well, it's 10%. I don't believe in that. Because one week it may be 5%, it may be 2%, and the next week it may be 25%. Because it's not a matter of how much. We get so locked in. God's not up in heaven looking at the gross in the net and saying, you owe me this. What God's doing is looking at your heart and saying, it doesn't matter what you wrote in check because your heart's not mine. And so the first thing that you can do is you can begin to put into practice that before you do anything else, when you receive, you give it. And it doesn't have to be to the church. If the Holy Spirit tells you, I think church people and members of church are responsible for helping the ministry of the church, but I'll never put that guilt on you. I want the Holy Spirit to tell you. And and let me tell you something, he has shown up. Somebody asked me, you know, what principles did you use our giving went up almost 40% in 2 years. I said, "What principles did you use, Holy Spirit?" I didn't preach on money one time, not that that's bad either. All I said is give according to what the Holy Spirit says and He will give you joy in your heart. And you listened and people give. When you begin to... Let me tell you, you know what that does? That breaks the power of that stuff having control over you. You take control over it then. You say, well, pastor, I can't live on 10% giving it away. Then start with two or one. Ask the Holy Spirit. But start somewhere because you, when you begin to give first, somebody gives you something and then you begin to give, you begin to realize it's not about me and my stuff and having. It's about being who God's called me to be. Give. Save. Savings is not bad. I know some people in church you, oh, you shouldn't save because that's a lack of faith. No, save. Save for your retirement. Save for things that you want to buy. Save up and don't, don't go into debt to buy it. Save up for it. Put some percentage back of savings and then live on the rest of it. When you can begin to put those principles and I don't care about percentages, when you can begin to ask yourself, am I giving, am I saving, am I living? Then all of a sudden, what was in control of your heart begins to let loose and God begins to take place. Church, I want you to understand. You know what financial independence is? It's living independently of serving your money. You can have two nickels to rub together and be financially independent. You can be the richest person in town and be financially independent. It has nothing to do with the amount in your checkbook. It has to do with how much control that stuff has over you and your decisions and your priorities. I don't serve it. It serves me. Because really, when it comes down to it, it's not about money or greed or craving. It's about our heart. It's about being faithfully obedient to God. So as we take a moment, moving into the holiday season, we're bombarded with all that stuff. Let's ask ourselves, who do we serve and who serves us? Let's pray.